The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter, at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I'm joined by Justin Herzig, the winner of the 2020 Underdog Best Ball Championship for $200,000. Talk to Justin about his best ball strategies, the best way to attack best ball in 2021, some of the optimal strategies that you can use to differentiate yourself from the field. Uh, Talked about some DFS strategies, the ways in which people can improve their game and their contest selection, you know, the way in which we play, choose to play less profitable games and why people do that. And then, of course, some top shot discussion, some XFL discussion in the second half of the pod. Justin is mega sharp, and I think you guys will really enjoy what he has to say. If you want to support the show, you can get daily episodes of the Tate Cast uh, on Top Shot, the Top Shot Tangents, on patreon.com slash TateCast, or you can just leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. And now let's go ahead and get into the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome into the TakeCast. I'm welcoming in Justin Herzig, winner of the Underdog Best Ball Championship last year, uh, also winner of the Fantasy Football World Series uh, in the regular season. Just uh, absolutely crushing it and been wanting to have you on the show for a while uh, I love grinding in the best ball streets. Also love crypto, obviously. Also very into the NFT space. So going to cover a lot of that stuff today. Justin, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. Uh, it's an exciting time right now. All of my backgrounds just kind of coming together with all this blockchain, sports, all the niche DFS stuff. It's uh, It's been a fun few months. Yeah. All right. So I think a, a great place to start is with best ball, but more specifically, instead of like, oh, how did you uh, how did you become so rich? How did you win in 2020? Which we'll talk about in a second. What I most want to talk about is what did you learn in drafting in 2020, and you know what mistakes do you think people are making? What do you find to still be exploitable about NFL best ball as it especially in these tournament formats, right? DraftKings tournaments, underdog tournaments, FanDuel. I imagine will be launching a tournament they. The FanDuel product release launch launch twelve man best ball leagues, but don't launch the tournament and then spend a million dollars on commercials, but don't watch the tournament. Very confunding. Hey, they uh they teased us, um, and uh, I have heard rumors that if they're going to go in this year, they're going to go big, and they've made the decision they're going in. So we'll see how big. Yeah, well, I I mean I I hope that they go big because best ball, I mean best ball NFL is probably my favorite fantasy game like as it exists like if i could if you're like okay you can only play one type of fantasy game for the rest of your life i think best ball nfl would be it because the best part of fantasy is drafting 
and having to do waivers sucks. I mean, there were week, week uh, 10, you know, FFPC main event teams, all these teams I'm sitting there on Wednesday nights, just pulling my hair out, hating to do waivers. So, I mean, best ball is the best. So, so 2020 best ball, kind of what is your overarching strategy heading in? Yeah. So 2021 looking forward or what did we learn from the past? Because yeah. What did you, what did you learn from 2020 in, in terms of both your drafting and then from your analysis of the drafts after the season was over? Yeah. And so I will, I'll give a shout out. We did um, just post an article on establish the run. That's for free. Anybody can read it. That kind of is the, what are those five keys? What did we learn from 2020? And uh, so I can touch a couple on those and just some high level things. But like when we think back to year of 2020, it was the year of the stack. Everyone was talking in best mm-hmm. ball about, okay, I need a stack. And uh, obviously, you know, the couple of years before that in DFS, we started really seeing the value of you get that correlation with your QB and your pass catcher. And so I think if anything, we actually saw people going overboard. Um, and it's hard for me to say that because I am a strong, strong proponent of stacking within best ball. And I think it's just, we need to take a unique perspective on how we do that stacking. So first off, it doesn't mean just the QB and his pass catchers. Um, when we think of what's something like Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry and DFS, those two in general, aren't going to correlate well in a given game because Tannehill has some rushing TD options. Henry's getting a game plan where they're actually ahead early on. Like there might be some tiny correlation, but like in general, you don't want that, uh, you know, running back. That's not catching passes with his quarterback in best ball, throw that out the window. You just want to make a bet on a team or a couple teams because across the entire season, if Derrick Henry has a great season, that means the offense is highly efficient. They're scoring, they're winning games. Ryan Tannehill also is probably having a great season. So when I think of stacking, I think of, okay, I want to bring an entire core of players around the team. And the second is sometimes you don't even need that quarterback. Um, I've seen times where, you know what, I'm fine with going with a stack with those skill players. If I miss out on that quarterback, it's not the biggest loss because it's a onesie position. I can make up those points elsewhere and you can still maybe get value with some of those other players. So I still keep that stacking mindset. Um, But other thing is people just were taking that year of the stack so far and reaching four or five rounds to make sure that, you know, you get that core member of the stack. Maybe you reach around or two to get that quarterback when in a large GPP where you're playing for upside, each time you make a reach above ADP, you're giving up some edge. And uh, so that's where I think there's that level of balance and still a very strong proponent of stacking, but it's how do we stack with the right mindset and also make sure we're not giving up crazy value when the edge, the upside, and we're going for such upside in all of these GPPs. Yeah. So I think that you make a, probably the biggest key point, which was the point about the quarterbacks, because if you just think about the scoring distribution of quarterbacks, one, it's pretty limited, right? It's very rare for quarterbacks to get over, like, let's say 30, especially with the way that's, I mean, on DraftKings, it's a little bit different. 100-yard rush bonus for guys like Lamar, Cam, Dak, you know, whatever. And then the 300-yard bonus, but specifically underdog scoring, uh, the drafters best ball championship, which I uh, threw a bunch in last year, FanDuel scoring, there's going to be no bonuses. So you're even like literally even just do the math in your head of 350 passing yards for total touchdowns, right? Like even that can be, which is a huge real life game. Even that 
you know, is, is 10 points more than a lot of other quarterbacks. Some weeks, 12 points more than quarterbacks uh, the other weeks. And then the other thing that goes into this is like, obviously it's pretty flat. And especially if you're drafting two quarterbacks or three quarterbacks, you're going to have a lot of guys scoring between that 18 to 25 point range on any given week. So obviously the correlation of Derek Carr, Henry Ruggs and Darren Waller is going to be pretty strong, but then you also have to factor in all the weeks where, Derek Carr literally like completes 80% of his passes to those guys, right? Where Darren Waller scores 60% of the Raiders receiving fantasy points on a given week. And, you know, Waller has a huge game. Rugg scores a long touchdown. And in the end, Derek Carr had 303 passing yards and two passing touchdowns. And as a result of that, we think about the quarterback as the originator of the stack And I wonder if stacking of the teammates ends up being like, obviously we do still want to do the quarterback stacking, but you know, I mean, if you're in these drafts and you're trying to do the double quarterback stack, a lot of the times that second one, it's, you know, it's going to be the Raiders. It's going to be Drew Locke and two of his guys. It's going to be, you know, this year, it's going to be Jared Goff and whatever 18th round Detroit Lions wide receiver you take. And those are just by the nature of their range of outcomes, very low upside options. I mean, maybe there will be some spike weeks, but over the course of the season, those aren't offenses that you want to be betting on. And so I I really like the point of wagering on teammates combined, because at a certain extent, what you're doing is you're just betting. The market is wrong about this offense as a whole. The Titans are going to score more points than the market expects. You know, the Eagles are going to score more points than the market expects. And therefore I just want more of those players as opposed to, I have to have the quarterback with these three skill position players. Right. And I think that brings me to my second point is you should be playing for upside. And with quarterbacks, I think more than ever before. So the past two years, I've been a strong proponent of, as you were kind of alluding to the quarterback position, just isn't that much from a variant standpoint, like that 18 to 25, you're going to get, if I draft three quarterbacks, like I'm not going to lose the position and I'll be able to capitalize and value elsewhere. Um, I've shifted that thought process now is I want to go with two quarterbacks and I'm only drafting quarterbacks that have rushing upside. We've seen, especially in the playoffs of these, uh, the highest scoring QBs for that week are the ones who get the rushing touchdowns. And when you Mm -hmm. want to advance, like, yes, 18 to 25 isn't that large of a, you know, of a gap, like you get your points. But the thing is, when you're talking underdog, you're talking FanDuel, where there's no bonuses, there's half PPR, the QB, when you do get those rushing games, I think it was Tannehill had a two rushing touchdown game in the playoffs. Josh Allen had a huge game that included one rushing touchdown. Those were the teams that were advancing in the playoffs because when you get that 35 points from your rushing QB, that's how you can best advance in these playoff formats. And then on a weekly, you're still taking that weekly upside. So not only with quarterbacks, I'm only drafting ones that have rushing upside, but also don't be scared of injuries and avoid those safe picks. When let's talk about injuries for a second. I know some people this year are like, okay, George Kittle, I think he only played eight games last year. He's going as like an early second rounder right now. Like, okay, I want George Kittle because I love his upside, but I'm scared of his injuries. So I might go draft an extra third tight end in the 18th round. Well, Mm -hmm. the thing is, if that third tight end in the 18th round is relevant to you, then you're already lost in that league anyways. Yeah, you already lost. You're counting on Kittle to just go ham on the year or at the least make up for his second round value. So don't be scared of injuries. You're going to lose a majority of these contests that you play in, but especially for the larger GPPs, your goal is to win it. So make assumptions that your first couple of picks are going to provide value. They're going to be strong picks. 
then draft the rest of your draft under that assumption. And so I'm still probably going to get a second tight end to that George Kittle, but I'm definitely not drafting a third because I've already allocated too much draft capital in one position. And now I'm making a bet of, uh oh, what happens if something gets injured? Well, I'm losing that draft anyways. Right. So, I mean, I, I feel like that should be intuitive, right? I feel like that should just be something that when people are drafting, they're, they're drafting as if every pick is correct, but it, it doesn't though. Like people do things that would suggest that it's not all the time. Like, you know, the people will handcuff their running backs, right? Okay. I'm going to take Clyde Edwards Hilaire and Darrell Williams. I'm going to take Derrick Henry and Darrington Evans. Now the, the, the comeback to this would be, oh, you know, I looked at the team that won the championship last year and he had a guy who got hurt and he didn't contribute any points. So what's the harm in it? Right. And looking at that, this, and this same thing happens in DFS too. People will look at the teams that win GPPs and not the accumulation of teams that are finishing top 1%, top 0.1%, you know, top uh, 99th percentile. Like just looking at the one result is, is not the right way to do things. And also looking at the results of just one team to factor in your decision-making is not the right way to do things either. Like it's, it's better to view it's, you have to view the data as a whole. And so I don't like literally, I don't even know. I'm sure, I'm sure it is possible that a team that drafted uh, a running back and the handcuffed running back may have made the final last year on underdog or may have even won. I, I don't even know, but I know without a shadow of a doubt that that's not the optimal way to allocate the scarcest resource, which is just a roster spot. The, the scarcest resource in terms of best ball is roster spots that can provide points to the starting lineup and for example, Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard, right? That's a pretty natural one that people would do. It's an attractive offense. People can talk themselves into Pollard having some standalone value, which I think he will. But the chances of both of those guys contributing points on a weekly basis is super low, right? The Cowboys would have to score like 50 points or something for both of those guys to be hitting your lineups. And they directly cannibalize each other. Like they're, they're actually diminishing the value of one another on the same lineup. And those are the types of choices you really want to avoid making. Right. And we've seen some rare exceptions for that where when you think, but it's in situations where the running backs aren't handcuffs for each other, but they both have core roles. So Latavius Murray and Alvin Kamara in 2018 yeah. had multiple games where they both were top 10 backs across the season. I think they were both top 15 and you weren't spending the significant draft capital on them with a Zeke and Pollard situation. Pollard is being drafted due to his upside of if Zeke gets hurt or if Pollard overtakes that role. That's not a combo that I want to have on my team. But if you're able to get two later running backs where together you think they may have value, um, I'm trying to think, obviously, things are going to change with the Aaron Jones news. But like if you were to grab Jamal Williams and A.J. Dillon, where neither of them are going as elite backs and you just think that the Packers are going to be a run first team and they're both able to deliver you value. It's not that one only delivers value as it cannibalizes the other. That's maybe the exception where I consider that a team stack. I'm betting on Green Bay being successful and being run heavy highly efficient. And I think at their draft position, there's value there. Um, but like, as you said, for the most part, I'm definitely not drafting just a backup as a handcuff because if my starter goes down, well, now I'm losing out on that first, second, third round value. Um, and I think the, the third point that I would bring for only specific to these large GPPs is the idea of how to be contrarian. 
Now in DFS, we're very familiar with contrarian. You grab a guy who's not high owned, maybe two to 5% high owned. If he goes off, then your team does well because no minimal other people have him. In best ball, it's more challenging because a guy like Tony Pollard on a given week might be contrarian because, you know, Zeke's likely the starter. If you draft Tony Pollard or you draft anyone that's being drafted in most drafts, you're not getting any edge on everyone else in your tournament. But if you can find a running back, a wide receiver, someone who you think has upside that is not actually being drafted in the majority of tournaments, that's where you get value. So take, for example, three running backs, Naheem Hines, Mike Davis, and James Robinson. All three of those backs were drafted either in the 15th round or not drafted at all. I think So Naheem Hines will go with half PPR. All three of them finished as like top 15 backs. They all had great years. Now, if you go to the playoffs, if you had one of those players, you probably did pretty well in your initial group of 12 because they all provided strong value. But when right. you got to the playoffs, a lot of other people also had Naheem Hines. Mike Davis, on the other hand, was only drafted around like 10 to 15% of drafts. And James Robinson was like around 1%. So if you had those Mike Davis or James Robinson and they have a strong week in the playoffs, you know, your best ball playoffs, you now have a contrarian edge. You have a unique player that is not on other teams. So if he goes off for that 200 yards, two touchdowns, you're getting that DFS style contrarian value that we speak to. And the only way you get it is if you can identify players who are not being drafted in majority of drafts. Yeah, I think that makes some sense. Also, I mean, another another thing, and I've I've never like ran Sims on this or asked. I mean, I can't run Sims. I've never I've never asked. But like, what about taking guys significantly over ADP because it gives you a different roster construct? Um, you know, like for example, like taking quarterbacks early to wrap the stack up, taking tight ends early, things like that. Like, does that put you into a we like a different roster construct where you're less likely to have overlap with other teams. Like if you ever, have you thought through that at all? I I've never, I've never done it obviously because it's just so ingrained in me as a fantasy player. Like, no, I would never take a guy who should go in the ninth round in the sixth round, you know, obvi- like, you know, in game injury or whatever like that. But I, I wonder if there's any value in stuff like that. Across an 18, you know, an 18 pick draft, you're going to find enough ways to differentiate yourselves. If anything, you're probably just giving up value and someone else might have a similar stack or similar players, but they're also going to throw in a second rounder while you have a seventh round talent because of your wonkiness. Um, I will say when we've gotten into some of these playoff style best ball, where you're only talking a smaller sample size, right? Teams, less picks, um, yeah. less picks. Like that's 100%. Like the underdog playoff one where you only drafted five players there. I love the idea of if I had the first overall pick, my first pick was Lamar and Lamar was going normally like 10th or 12th overall, because yeah. now out of my five, my five man roster, I'm going to have a very unique construction. And that gives me a little, you know, contrarian value across an 18, you know, pick and season long, really I'm more of a numbers. My goal is to get into the playoffs as many as I can and then optimize for week 16. And the way I'm optimizing for week 16 is not, I'm trying to identify who that defense is because we are very bad. Yeah. Who who knows now, right. But game stacks, we can know that, okay, these two teams are going to go against each other. And so this past year, I believe I had Matt Ryan and Travis Kelsey and Calvin Ridley. And uh, for those, I tried to get that kind of game stack, knowing that like, hey, these are two explosive offenses. If this team makes it to the championship week 16, that's a huge game stack that could just go off. And that was coincidentally actually my team that won the underdog. 
Right. Um, I guess the way that is easiest to apply being contrarian is to be contrarian with roster construction. Uh, you know, four running backs, 10 wide receivers, uh, hyper fragile, one tight end, right? Take, take George Kittle and then, or or take George Kittle, Travis Kelsey, and then take an 18th round tight end with 10 wide receivers, three quarterbacks that all go late. I know that Leone is a big fan of the hyper fragile running back strategy. I did it a little bit last year on underdog, but I mean, there is, it's, it's, you're flying naked. You feel, you feel like, well, you know, if one of these guys gets hurt, right? If one of these guys gets hurt, I can't win. And I guess also it's kind of about your goals. Like the market is still soft enough in best ball that you could grind out 50 teams, just drafting off of aggregate ranks and projections have the right roster constructions, three quarterbacks, three tight ends, uh, six running backs, six wide receivers. Um, you know, basically as flat as can be. And you'd probably still churn out a profit because so many people are drafting so suboptimally, right? Wrong roster construction, taking bad picks early, right? Just taking guys who are undraftable at their ADP, at their ADP. Like the, the field, like people are bad at fantasy football, but to win one of these things and, and more importantly, to position yourself properly in a theoretical way. Like I, I think that, uh, I feel like I left money on the table last year by not going after more of those hyper fragile, you know, three or four running back teams. Yeah. And Leon and I are going to put out an article on this, but we've started diving into the numbers from last year. You kind of just mentioned the two, you, you got pretty close, but a two, four, 10, two. So two QBs, four running backs, 10 wide receivers and two tight ends. That was actually the most successful roster construction without a doubt. Um, if you use that format, you were 64% more often than random to finish in the top 10% of that tournament. And uh, I think for the top 1%, it was 54%. So like you were almost, you were you know, almost doubling your odds based off random by using that construction. Uh, the second best construction for finishing the top 10%, you only increased your chances by getting there 11, by 11%. And that was two, four, nine, three. And that is something that like, we kind of talked about last year about this idea of the fragile, um, but I don't think we saw it come into place as strong as this. And I think this time we actually saw a large enough sample size to be able to trust these numbers because more people tried it last year. And without a doubt, every best ball draft I go into this year, especially, you know, for larger tournaments, I'm going to draft two, four, nine, two. And then my last spot will either be another wide receiver or another tight end, depending on who my other tight ends are. Um, and I think like, yeah, there will probably be some exceptions where I get screwed out of running backs and I change things a little bit. Overall, that's what I'm going to guard, you know, aim strongly towards because the data backs it up. The you know, from a conceptual standpoint, from an upside standpoint, it all makes sense. And uh, it was just great to see kind of that uh, come to fruition this past year. Yeah, I mean, running backs are terrible. Like we all hate running backs anyway, so it just does. And and the running backs that you're drafting rounds, you know. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, those are binary outcomes where that's not true with wide receivers. You know, wide receiver, Cole Beasley can show up with like four spiked weeks, right? Uh, we're you know, talking about eight. Beasley's yeah. a beast. Come on. Yeah. Bees, be, okay. So Sammy Watkins, right? Demarcus <laughs> Robinson. Those guys, those guys will show up with spiked weeks here and there, and it won't need it. Like they won't need an injury or whatever to get them there. It'll just Chris Conley, right? Our, our guy, like that's, that's a great example of a guy, 18th round pick. He'll have two spike weeks. He'll pay off. Whereas your average 18th round running back 
probably either has zero spiked weeks or like four. Like he showed, like he showed, he shows up and he is like a starter for multiple weeks and you're using his score. But those kind of, those kind of binary choices at running back, uh, they, don't function together as well the way it does with wide receivers where you want you want the computer picking from lots of optim uh lots of randomly distributed scores whereas with running back uh you're i mean obviously you're you're trying to get the you know the cmc the derrick henry the league winning style guys but you don't want to be going in on like you don't want to take leonard fournette and ronald jones and uh joe mixon and uh who's the cream hunt, the guy, everyone, like people just love those guys and they're just very rarely solid investments and probably even worse. So in best ball, like any running back who gets drafted in the seventh round because of like a third down roll or whatever, or for some safety is generally like a really bad bet in best ball. Um, Any, any specific angles that we see for 2021. I mean, we're not even to the draft yet. We're waiting. Like I I've done a couple on FFPC and on underdog, but haven't like super grinded it yet. Yeah, no, I haven't actually joined other than we did one inaugural draft just to kind of get mm-hmm. things going with FFPC. Um, I haven't jumped too much into it from an actual right now, still just kind of improve the process and learn from last year. But I would say the biggest shift for me is going to be trying to get two of the top 12, 13 QBs because the majority of those, I think all of about two, uh, have that rushing upside. That also allows me to allocate an extra position later on to that wide receiver. And as you said, wide receiver is the highest variance position. So let me just get as many dart throws as possible on a weekly basis. Um, and I think the most challenging decision this year is going to be what you do at tight end, because you have three tight ends that are just heaps and bounds ahead of the rest of the field. Mm-hmm. And then it starts to get kind of ugly. Um, but then, you know, we're going to get the same thing that we get every year. Every single year, it's, oh, there's so many sleeper tight ends. Oh, I'm so excited about that 8 to 14 range. And then virtually none of them, maybe one of them ends up popping. Uh, so I think that's something I haven't really honed in my strategy yet. But um, I, I think I could definitely see myself, if I can grab one of those elite tight ends, grabbing it, grabbing only one other, and then going with that 2 4 10 two. Yeah. All right. So I want to shift a little bit here, which is something that you and I both feel pretty passionately about is that banging your head against the wall, playing main slate NFL, main slate NBA, main slate MLB. Some of the best people on earth can't beat the game, right? Like literally some of the best DFS players on earth have been like, look, I I can't beat this game at this level, or I can't stomach the swings of the game anymore. And like, I mean, at the very low dollar level, like low dollar NBA head to heads, low dollar NFL head to heads, I still think you'll probably get enough good action. But then you're talking about like just a horrible hourly ROI on your time, like grinding uh, the $3 DK head to head lobby. Your, your hourly expectation on that is very low, especially considering like late swap and everything. And so I think a lot of smart DFS people have rightly pointed out like, yeah, you should be doing other stuff. You should be grinding tennis DFS where there is less content, less projections. You should be playing second half DFS. You should be doing these other very clear opportunities to make money that offer a better daily, hourly, weekly, monthly, yearly ROI then, and I mean, obviously, like I'm a huge hypocrite. I, I play main slate and everything, and I'll, I'll never stop, even if my ROI is literally like cut in half from what it was in 2017 or whatever. Um, so, like, kind of what is some of the advice you could give to people who feel that they're just like banging their head against the wall as it pertains to DFS? Yeah, I mean, it starts off with goal setting. You got to think about what are your actual goals and what are you trying to accomplish with this? Yep. 
if your goal is really to churn out that ROI, like you are doing this from an EV perspective, you want to grind out the bankroll, you maybe want to go pro in this someday, but you just want to kind of really want to win from a you know bankroll development standpoint, then okay, that's one thing. Um, and we can, we'll get into that in a second. If your goal is just to have some fun, enter some GPPs, throw in that $100, like then you know, the niche sports probably aren't right for you because the level of effort to go into that is pretty high. Uh, but so for me personally, I've just realized that you know, I used to have my own projections and I realized that was a waste of time because even if my projections were the best out there, which they weren't, but even if they were, the amount of edge that I'm getting from my individual projections versus the amount of time that I put into creating them isn't worth it. So I may as well just sign up for some of these other great sites out there and get their projections. Okay, so now I've got that. Then you have so many people that are talking from a content wise. And because, you know, when you get to the main slate, the edges are just very small. So I'm still a main proponent. I still play main slate without a doubt. But where I invest my time is far more in those niche sports so or niche games. So that's how best ball kind of started for me three years ago, and it was more of three mans. Um, when I was playing on draft two years ago, so not this past summer before that, I did 30,000 three-man drafts. And yeah. that 30,000 is not me doing it manually, but I found an edge, and I realized that through the underdog side, I was draft the time, through the draft software, I could automate my lineups and – I can, you know, using their software, no robots or anything like that, but just say like, hey, here are my rankings, here are my positions. And if you drafted against me, you probably, if you did it optimally, would have an edge on me because there's way to, you know, there's way to capitalize against a, you know, an auto sure. an auto draft. Yeah. But across a large enough drafts, I was okay to give up that edge because I still felt that I had value. And so that's where I kind of just spent my time, improved my process, watching some of those drafts happen and changing my rankings to eventually be like, okay, I feel comfortable with this to just mass enter these and go for all the, I think one, three, five, ten, twenty dollars I was just doing automatically. Um, and then during the season, I was like, okay, where is there a conditional, where's additional edge? And so most recently it's been second half. Um, there's no projections for second half. There's yep. no ability to go watch content and spend a week listening to people talking about and listening to others. It was, pro it's probably the most pure form of actually watching the game adapting in real time, using your own to intuition, some projections that kind of started at the beginning of the game, rolling that all together in a very short period of time and putting out your lineup from either tournaments or cash. And I absolutely love that idea. So I spent like about, I spent probably a month or so just going through old data, building out an actual projections model where I could input, okay, the pregame projections, watch the right. game, make some small adjustments based off who might be getting double covered, maybe an injury here or there. And then just completely on that, my goal was I'm going to be the best second half player of DFS for DraftKings and FanDuel. And uh, I would, you know, I'm confident to say that I am without a doubt, like top two or three. Um, there soccer. Well, soccer Dave is number one, right? Obviously. I mean, soccer, soccer, soccer Dave. No, no, I'm, I'm teasing. Oh. That's our, that's our bit on the swole cast. Like kitchen kitchen literally is, doesn't have it in him to grind the main slate anymore. So he'll like sit up and grind fourth quarter showdowns. Like while he's like, eating his blizzard in bed, he, he grinds the fourth quarter showdowns. He's, he's all by hand though. He's all by hand. Yeah. And it's just so much fun. No, I would say, I would say Papa Gates has gotten in the field and there, um, and he's very, very good. Um, so there, there's definitely some increased competition out there, and the edge has definitely decreased from when it first started. But and I, I say that like I, my confidence and my ability is not because I'm smarter than anyone else, but just I devoted the time to it. 
And I think that's where the opportunity is for any of these areas. And we saw it with XFL, we see it with others. Like if you're willing to devote that time in areas where majority of the top pros just don't have that time allocation or interest because they've got, you know, it's not worth it for them. There's an opportunity there. So that's where I'd give recommendations to people. Find something that you're passionate about, that you're interested in and see where you can get your own unique edge rather than just, you know, you subscribe to a site, you got what they have. And you know, again, this is dependent upon what your goal is and what you're trying to get out of DFS. Right. Yeah. And I mean, some people just enjoy DFS because it's fun, right? It's a fun game and they, you know, they have 1200 bucks on their DK account and they enter stuff they feel like, and they don't care about the missions and achievements. And they're not trying to grind out every small edge. They just enjoy daily fantasy, which you know, to be honest, I think is like a healthier ecosystem anyway than like 20,000 people spread across the world all trying to grind each other to beat like 11% rake. Like, I know that we we like made fun of Robbins and the DK guys a lot when they marketed DFS as like an entertainment game, but that's like pretty strongly how I feel about it. Like, I mean, I'm on a giant downswing right now, so it's helpful. It's helpful for me to think of it as entertainment because I certainly would not like sports as much without daily fantasy. But then also, like, I'm also not like a super serious sports better. Like, I use the models we have at DR and everything, and I I like spots here and there. But mostly, I bet on games and bet on player props like for fun because I enjoy it. And viewed through that lens like DFS is just simply more fun. So like, yeah, but what the, I mean, the most important thing in any financial activity, like you said, is just establishing your goals because if you don't establish goals, you will never know what to do. Like you'll never know if you're doing things right. You'll feel bad about your process. You'll feel bad when you lose. You will feel too euphoric when you win when something goes right and then you don't make good decisions with money when you're feeling euphoric so just yes i mean establishing your goals is the best thing you can do which leads us to the topic where of course we had to get to which is top shots and nfts because speaking of euphoria lots of people are very euphoric about their top shot you know their evaluate.market their moment ranks account balance and everything and i i guess let's just start here Talk to me about your thoughts about Top Shot when you, when it, it first came to you. You're like, holy shit, Top Shot. Like, did you read Bale's article? Were you in before? Like, take me through your thought process. Yeah. Uh, so I'll actually, I'll actually go back a little before. So around beginning of COVID, I want to say March or April, uh, Jeremy mm-hmm. Levine called me and he's pitching me. He's, he's really just picking my brain. He's like, hey, I know you're into big DFS stuff, obviously, but um, are you into these sports cards, these physical cards? Um, because he was without a doubt in the middle of one of his like 5am binge sessions and just absolutely head first. And he went so far into that space that I personally kind of was like, I don't want the hassle, the, you know, the hassle of having to actually go figure out what the price of these cards are, where others are selling them for. You, you don't want to deal with this. You don't want to deal. You don't want to have just giant stacks of these sitting on your desk that you'll never sell and never do anything with. And like what you had to buy them on eBay, you had to get them shipped to you. You've got to store yeah. them. You got to, if, if you're opening in packs, you got to get them rated. Um, and like, it just, it felt too, too much for me. Um, and then you fast forward to December of last year, November, actually November, December. And I decided, okay, I'm going to build a company 
for the physical sports card market. It was called card shares. It was the idea of, you know, it takes a similar thing what Starstock and what Dibs are doing, where you can open the card, open the cards. I almost said moments. Now I've gotten that one. That's good. Um, yeah. But you can actually open the cards and we can use breakers. The most exciting part, just like fantasy is the draft. It's the opening of the packs. Yeah. You can do fractional investing in it. We're going to make it so people don't have to worry about from uh, the counterfeit aspect. They don't have to worry about the grading aspect. We can handle all that. There's a marketplace, like all these ideas that solve the current market. That was in December. I'm working with the team. We've got designers. We've got the website being built. And then I see Bales. And so Bales, January 15th, makes that tweet. And I probably spent around 48 hours where initially I was probably... I don't know, cautious, I would say. I remember talking to Peter Jennings a little on Twitter and giving my thoughts, like, how could a James Harden, because he also made like an $8,000 James Harden moment purchase. And I was like, if you multiply this by like market cap, like you're going to end up at like a billion dollars, like for a James Harden, like it just didn't make sense. 48 hours from when I first started just went completely 180. And realizing that everything that Topshop provided is what that physical market was completely lacking. They yep. solve everything from the enjoyment of being able to open the packs, being able to then hold your packs without having to actually physically have them. If you want to know the price, you can see the price. If you want to sell it, buy, you can do that. You can track, you can see the ownership. You don't have to worry about grading. Like just everything that was so painful about that physical world was coming here. And uh, so I'd say after about 48 hours, TJ Lasig, who is the other uh, co-host and co-founder of On The Moment with me, we were like, hey, this is huge. This is a huge opportunity from an investment standpoint, from a collector standpoint, and also from a business standpoint. And TJ and I, he's been in the DFS space for a while as well as um, he's with Roto Grinders. Uh, we're like, there's such a gap here. Let's start building a company that'll provide the level of content, tools, community that we have seen, you know, we have benefited from in the DFS community. Right. And so that's where we really just do it dove in. And so from an investment standpoint, the actual top shots, I think each of us probably put around 40, 50,000 in the first couple of weeks. Um, that obviously ended up being a very good decision, just diving in as quickly as possible. Um, and then from a, an actual like community content wise, we've been you know going hard with the on the moment podcast. We have a huge community that's just highly engaged, highly just analytical, taking that kind of DFS mindset that we've all used and applying it to this kind of more collector world of NFTs and Top Shop. Yeah. So I think that's like the experience that a lot of people have had of like, because I mean, I was like that at first. I was like, Bales is so stupid. What is he doing? <laughs> and then I, I thought about it for like, again, like another day. And I was like, oh, this is actually the most brilliant thing of all time because I, I didn't know anything about cards really then. Like in a weird way, Top Shop made me like get into cards because Cards are expensive, but they're still cheaper than Top Shot is. Like if I want to, like, like I can go buy these PSA tens or whatever for a hundred bucks, you know. And which, like, in Top, it's so weird. Top Shot's really warps you. Like a hundred bucks on Top Shot is like a an Ish Smith Series One moment, you know. And so it's like cards are more fun to me. Top Shots I view a little bit more cynically. I, I mean, there is some stuff that I like want to collect, like these rising star moments. There's two Thunder guys. Theo Maladon got his first and only moment, and I bought a good serial number of that. And I mean, maybe I'll sell it someday, you know, maybe five years from now when Top Shots has taken over the world and I want to buy a Lambo or whatever. But like, really, I just like it and I just want to keep it forever. And it may not be his first moment, though. 
Oh, no. There's a, it's a tricky one. Uh, while it's the first one in the marketplace, he actually had one already minted that's in the pre-order packs as a slash 35K. That's a different moment. So uh, that's I'm a tilting. one. I, well, I did, no, that. but didn't they didn't they say that all three star rookies would be 4K max mint? Okay, so so yeah, I think that's the I think he has that 4K. Oh, he has the 4K that is in oh, the man. upcoming. That's right because I same thing. I'm like, hey, there's only one moment out there. Like, I'm gonna buy, it. and there was someone in our Discord that was like, hey, Justin, you want to check into this? Like, I. How are we supposed to know that it, he already had one minted? And the only way to do it is you've got to look into the packs, see that, or go on Crypto Slam and check ahead of time. But uh, I went through that kind of uh, 10 minute tilt as well. But yeah, I still think I, it's well, a great moment. I still think it's valuable. Yeah, I mean, it's a cool moment, and I, I want it. I want it anyways. Like, I didn't. I did not buy that with the thinking like, oh, I'm gonna flip this later on. A bunch yeah. of it, like, I bought a bunch of Isaiah Robies that I'm just like, I like Isaiah Roby. He plays for the Thunder. It's a sick dunk. Like I just want, I just want these. And so I'm like kind of hybrid collecting and flipping now. One thing that has kind of been weighing on me though is like, and I, I just want this to be very clear to the people who listen to the show, who follow me on Twitter. Like to me, and you maybe you'll disagree with me. Maybe you'll push back at me on this, but like Top Shot is not Bitcoin. And if someone came to me and they said, I have, you know, I work, I, you know, I work 50 hours a week. I'm, just, I'm a normal dude. I got a wife, I got kids, whatever. But I, I want to invest a little bit in this growing online space. I would say buy Bitcoin, buy 25 bucks a week, buy 10 bucks a week and come back to it 20 years later. I, this like to me, Top Shot still has a very real chance of of being like very speculative, and all of these NFTs do, right? I mean, CryptoPunks have like a really safe floor from all the mega rich dudes who are into them, but you know, a lot of this stuff selling on OpenSea, a lot of this stuff selling on Nifty Gateway, like it really is not going to surprise me if there's a huge liquidity crunch worldwide, right? Like global banking problems currency problems, stock market problems. You know, if, if the Dow is losing 10 points a day, you're not going to be able to find anyone to buy your Bitcoin angel on Nifty Gateway. It's not going to happen. And I feel the same thing is true with Top Shot. Now, I, because Top Shot is more familiar to me and I think the product is so cool and the NBA is promoting it, there's official licensing and everything. Like, I think it's a better, like a tier above a proposition better than a lot of this, the other NFT stuff is out there, but I don't necessarily fault people that just put all of it in one bucket. I still think there's plenty of opportunity. I think there's a lot of people who are going to make money on top shot. A lot of people who are going to make money on other NFTs, but like, I, I just, I, I want, this is more for my own edification than even something with you, but I knew you'd be a good person to talk to about it. Like, I don't think Top Shot is Bitcoin and there are clear paths to failure, I think, for all of this online collectible stuff. Right. And I mean, let's, for starters, I don't believe that anyone should be allocating their primary investments into crypto. Yes. Great point. Um, I feel that it should be a portion of your portfolio if you, you know, are a believer in it. Um, but it's not like someone should say, you know, Hey, all of my money should be NFT. It should be NFTs, obviously and not all my money should be TC or my investments and so forth. So you have to figure out what that kind of version is. Uh, the next is no one's ever said, Oh, I don't think sports cards are the same thing as the U S dollar. Yeah. Well, Very good point. Not. But like the reason why people may actually say like, Oh, but BTC, Bitcoin and NFTs are kind of similar is, 
okay, well, they're probably correlated in price because the majority of people buying NFTs are buying it with money that they got from cryptocurrency. There's some level of association because they're both built in the same technology of blockchain technology. Um, but like, you know, if this was a NoSQL database, some backend thing that no one really cares about, like it's not going to have the level of pizzazz or whatever. Like we should evaluate the NFT market and those digital arts, the top shot, whatever it is in their own name. I believe that the current NFT ecosystem is similar to what we saw with the kind of beginning of the internet boom. And yeah, there that's a great a comparison. And one of these companies is going to be Amazon, right? That's, that's kind of the theory. Yeah. There's a lot of fluff out there. And so Roham, the um, founder of Dapper Labs, he has a good quote. And he said, alternative assets are driven by individuals choosing to store wealth and assets that reflect their passions, interests, and communities. And so I think that is the key to a successful NFT project is really you need to be building around passions, interests, and communities. They can't just be people who are trying to get quick flips. It shouldn't be people that are just trying to say, I think this is a good long-term investment, but it really is, you have to be bought into what is being built. And I think one of the beauties of Top Shot is, well, we know that people are passionate about sports. We know that people have interest in these kind of collectibles and sports memorabilia. And from a community, you already have a group of community, you have the NBA community, you have the sports collector community, you have the technology community. We've even seen like from a, maybe call it an edge or a sports gambler or something with DFS poker, et cetera. Yeah, um, grinding but, community. Yeah, so you've just got all these areas. And I think combination, that's why I feel that kind of top shot is a bit more unique from the NFTs where yes, there are is gonna be, there's gonna be some artwork that people are passionate, interested about and a community is formed around but there's also going to be a ton that just disappears because you don't have those three aspects. And uh, in our pod, in our stream last night, Jeremy Levine gave a really good example of how he is thinking about some of the art NFTs that he's buying. And he's like, first and foremost, I just buy stuff that I think looks really cool. And yep. if I am, you know, so if someone is trying to make investments in this space, but they're not doing it with their own level of passion and interest, they're going to have a disadvantage because how are you going to evaluate those, you know, those memorabilia, those NFTs, unless you're doing a hindsight analysis, unless you're late and you're waiting, well, other people like it. Okay, well, other people like it, you're a little behind the eight ball now. So use that kind of, you need to be your own alpha in this space. Use your own insight for what you are passionate, interested about, and where you see that community forming. And that's where I think is the best way to identify and kind of select areas that'll be successful. Yeah, I mean, that's great advice is like, don't buy NFTs that seem stupid to you. Like if you think Top Shot is stupid or if you think Nifty Gateway is stupid or if you think anything, I mean, any a stock, if you think a stock is stupid and the company's stupid, don't buy it. If you think Bitcoin is stupid, don't buy it just because it goes up. Like buy, I mean, I wouldn't say never buy something you don't understand because obviously there will be things that you don't understand that maybe you get like a good feeling from or someone you know who's really intelligent is really into it but i i, I would say straight up things you like think are stupid d don't buy them like it, there just is no point if i thought top shot was stupid i mean one i would feel horribly viciously uh, sick to my stomach about missing out on the theoretical dollars but if i thought it was stupid i wouldn't have bought it and like so we're all anticipating an NFL product to come out from from Dapper um, or from some company, right? It just it's it, it it feels inevitable at this point, and 
you know, I, I hope that it is as good and scheduled in such a way to make it competitive to top shot. I mean, top shot is the first mover advantage, but the NFL product is obviously going to have the advantage. They're just way more NFL fans. Now the NFL, the NFL fan base in the U S yes. But the NFL fan base is going to be much less technologically savvy, older, probably don't own if like probably a lot of NFL fans don't own Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? Like they're going to be more like the, the, Oh, what, like why I just could watch it for free on YouTube. Why would I buy it? But I mean, I know a lot of the people that listen to this show that I interact with obviously are very excited about the NFL, about the NFL product. And I, I, I don't know. What are, what are your thoughts on like what happens to the, the, the top shot product when, and if there is an officially licensed NFL uh, moment equivalent. Yeah. And I think, so I think it'll likely be Dapper Labs, the team behind Top Shot, that'll probably sign the NFL. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that gets announced fairly soon. Um, but I think they made a very smart decision to make Top Shot their first area. Uh, not only is kind of probably was the least amount of friction to work with the NBA because they're such a tech forward organization um, and the NBPL is what the you know, player association as well. Um, but from a top shot stance, it's always going to be the first. It also yep. has the international appeal. It has more connection to players than you see with the NFL. Maybe it's because of the lack of helmets. Maybe it's because there's fewer on the court, closer to whatever it is. Um, there's definitely more personalities in the NBA. And then there's also longer careers on average. So like there's a lot of make, it makes sense why NBA kind of is a better product for this and why NBA um, the NBA card market, physical card market probably has had more success than NFL in the past. But, yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't see like Tom Brady cards are expensive, but they're not as expensive as Jordan cards. Yeah. And like cards have struggled with, um, for NFL. However, I think this is going to end up being closer to fantasy football 2.0 or the form of the DFS yeah. because this allows you I don't know. The NFL, like what you want to go get a card. So then in three years, that running backs out of the league or whatever. And then all those challenges and pain points that we talked about here, mm-hmm. I think because you get it so much easier to buy and sell in real time and kind of in between a week, maybe, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more movement in prices just on a weekly basis within the NFL, similar to how we see stock rise up and down for DFS or season long NFL players. Um, so I'm extremely excited because of our background and everything. I think in the U S it is going to be extremely successful. Uh, it obviously won't have the international appeal. And I think overall you might see like, okay, I'm going to move some money from top shot to football. Cause I'm a bigger fan there, but I think overall it's going to be more of a rising tide rises all ships. Um, where if anything, NFL will pull people in that weren't pulled into the NBA yeah. involved, love the product and then start. Cause I know of the major sports, maybe because I'm from Tampa and I never really had a team or anything like from our local area. Maybe it's because I was a really short little white kid growing up, but like NBA of the major sports was probably the least one that I watched. Um, I have watched more basketball over the past two months than I have in a long time. I mean, time. I love basketball anyways, but a hundred percent the same. I'm so much more plugged in to the NBA than I would be in a normal year. hundred percent. Like it, it really has increased my interest and my love of the game so much more. It's, it's brilliant from an NBA perspective to have me checking box scores, like literally every night. It's doing what fantasy football did. We were doing yeah. like fantasy football, got people to watch red zone. I wouldn't be shocked if we end up having a red core. I don't know what you call it, but a, something that's a similar to red zone 
for MBA where at night I can get the stats and stuff because there just wasn't as much of a draw for fantasy basketball because it's too tedious to be able to manage your lineup every single day. Even if you do a weekly format, do all the waivers and all that. Here, I buy my Jokic uh, Cosmic. I buy the Booker Cosmic. I maybe invest in a couple of these rising stars, seeing stars, and I want to see how they're doing. So I check the box score. I watch the late game. And I think the NBA knows that this had the opportunity to increase overall engagement. And that's far more a win for the NBA than the fees in the, that they're going to get from the actual top shot sales and all that. Yeah, no, you are you are 100% correct. Um, so yeah, I, I feel you know good about where Top Shot sits right now. I, I again, I, I don't, well, I mean, I, I hate being accused of being a shill. Uh, I, I guess just where I'm at is I feel good with the decisions I've made, but I am not putting any more US dollars into my dapper balance right now. I, I'm keeping a lot of my f- like flips on site, selling things that go up, like doing things like that. Um, you know, you and I, you know, Oh, I will change it for sure. I mean, also, I'm I've to supplement that. Anytime I've been able to get a pack, I've spent U.S. dollars on the pack because I was like, so instead of depositing every time I want to buy a moment, I will get extra funds onto the site via pack. So like the pre-order pack, uh, my Seeing Stars pack, and there was one other one that I've u- I used. Um, I want U.S. dollars. I used Ethereum. I used F for my my F wallet for it and. But yeah, you're right. That could change, but that's just where, that's where I sit right now. But, and and again, it does, it goes back to my point of like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not made of money. I have to make tough choices with investments and things the way lots of other people do. And like, I'm not selling Bitcoin to buy top shots. Like I, I won't, I won't, I won't really do it. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not emptying out my, I'm not emptying out my uh, 401k to buy top shots. I'm not, I'm not. Yeah. And so you might sell some of those physical cards to put some money in there. I don't oh, hundred percent. No, hundred percent. Yeah. If I, if I like, so I, I've been buying Jalen, like literally every time I can get a good deal on a Jalen Hurts, whether it be on Starstock, whether I see it on eBay, whether I see someone on Twitter post it, I buy Jalen Hurts. And when Jalen Hurts, you know, is the fourth best quarterback in fantasy and he gets MVP hype and everything. And I can sell some of those cards to buy, uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander's first moment or his rookie debut or whatever. Yeah, like that. That's something I would do. Yeah. Or Jalen Hurts' first moment. We'll see. Or Jalen, I mean, <laughs> Jalen Hurts' first moment is going to be, it's going to be that strike to Greg Ward. When they, when they, when that, when that comes out, like, yeah, sure. Whatever US dollars I have on hand will go, will go into that. But I mean, I, 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 I'm trying to strike the balance of being very excited about this thing and not overextending myself and trying to be like consistent with the messaging. Cause like I, I do, I take stuff to heart when people are like, Oh, you're shilling this thing where people can't withdraw and it's really speculative. And like some people will lose in the top shot market. Like that is just a fact. And I don't want to feel responsible for that. And I don't want to, I don't want to misguide anyone. And I, I don't know. I just, I want to, I want to feel like I'm giving a responsible and level-headed discussion on these things that I, that I think are super speculative. As you should. And I mean, we saw a billion dollars worth of purchases in the FIFA video game for people to buy some cards. The moment. Yeah. I was about half of that. Right. There you go. But like no one's telling Like, I mean, you know what you're doing with your money. It's expendable money. Obviously, no one should be counting on this to be the way that they are feeding their family or the way that they're going to retire eventually. 
Um, but I mean, like you, you, you understand the risks, you should understand the upside and you should be doing it if you are passionate as you know, I am not making these crazy purchases just because I think, oh, that's a cool moment. I'm a collector. That is yeah. definitely pushing my larger viewpoint on this, but I'm definitely doing it as both a collector and investor. And with every purchase, I have a short, medium and long-term strategy. And it goes back to what we said, know what your goals are figure out how to re meet those goals and figure out what you're willing to kind of put in. And I think that's where uh, long-term you'll have success and enjoyment. Yeah. Um, all right. Last thing, the XFL, man, I, 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 uh, let me, I gotta, I gotta dig, I gotta dig through my pile. They made XFL cards and I bought some of the, the PJ walkers oh, yeah. that they made. I, I might not have it in this stack right here, but I, I am excited about its return. I actually was wearing my St. Louis Battlehawk shirt uh, when I worked out yesterday. But uh, that was the that was the last thing I went to before the world shut down. It's it's we're um, Justin and I are recording this on March 11th, uh, the day the day the world stood still. Yeah. Like the last thing I did was the weekend before I went to a Battlehawks game, which is crazy to think about. I was in that arena with 30,000 people watching Jordan Tamu lead the Battlehawks. To a victory, yeah. But the, the XFL the beer snakes. I'm yes. trying to think of yeah. You guys were big on that. Oh yeah, awesome. big time, big time Battlehawks guy. I mean, look, the XFL was awesome. Anyone who complained about it, come on, it was more football. Like, how could you possibly complain about the XFL? So, are we going to get it back? If we get it back, do you think the quality of play will be better, similar, worse? What are what are your forecasting for the the intermediate future of the XFL? I mean, the timing for this is perfect because the past 24 hours, we've been hearing rumors. Imagine being The Rock. You are cut by the CFL, and now you basically have a chance to buy their league. Like That's what we're seeing is a potential either merger, acquisition of the CFL and XFL. And uh, if that was to happen, A, you're immediately getting increased talent fed into the league, which I think is fantastic because... While, yes, the Houston Roughnecks, even the Vipers, St. Louis, Battlehawks, like you had some strong teams. And the majority of those teams were strong because they had an offensive line and they had a quarterback. And if you had those two things, there was a leg up. When you had two teams play against each other, like, yeah, it was still football. The quality wasn't as great. If you can breathe in some of that CFL talent in there, I think that is fantastic. This, the, adding the CFL talent would be so big because they would be the – most of the quarterbacks there were like – good American college quarterbacks who like understand playbooks, like know how to get the throws out on time. And then, but the biggest thing would be adding linemen, adding linemen who know how to block. I mean, that, that was, that was the problem of the expo. We saw it with the, the Dallas renegades had like all these six skill position players had uh, Lance Dunbar and another running back who was on an NFL roster. Cameron Artis Payne. Right? Cameron Artis Payne. It was a double there. Yeah. Yeah. And then they had Jeff Bidette, who ran like a 4-2. He was on the Washington football team practice squad this year. They had uh, Landry Jones, though he only played like half of the first game because he got hurt. Yeah. But it was it was offensive line play. That was the biggest problem. I What I want them to do is I want them to make it harder to rush the passer. I want them to, to institute some kind of rule. Like you can only have three down linemen when the ball is snapped or something like that. Like Because let's be honest. We are not watching the XFL 
for the line play. We're not watching for, for the quarterbacks to get sacked. We want the XFL to be like arena football. We want it to be 54 to 40. Like that's, that's really what we want. And they'll never do it because to get guys to sign up for the XFL, they have to sell it to them as it's a path back to the NFL. It's a path to, you know, making those connections to, to impress, to putting good tape on, uh, putting good film on. So it'll never happen, but that's my dream. Maybe if you limit delayed blitzes, I think that's something where there's a middle ground where, um, because then you're just from an offensive line, you have less things to worry about. You're really just focusing on your man stuff. Um, I think that'd be an interesting one, but overall, like, um, I hope that it keeps more of the XFL rules than the CFL. Um, I think the XFL did a phenomenal job in kind of testing out and teasing out some of these new rules. We saw it from the after touchdowns, the one, two, three point conversion. And we saw the kind of coordinated math that went along with that. We saw the OT rules where it was, I think you get five, five attempts from the five yard line and you get two points per and like each team got that. Like that was the most disappointing so that was the most disappointing thing was that the coaches didn't exploit those rules enough. They didn't exploit, you know, uh, Keenan Reynolds, the old Navy quarterback played on the Seattle dragons. That's right. Yep. Seattle, something or other. They didn't the do it. They didn't do it once. They did not do the for, the double forward the pass. pass. Yeah. yeah. So it was, year one. it was year one. So I think you get an off season involved there. I think you right. get some data actually goes through. You would see some initials. like, and the Houston Roughnecks got so screwed. Like they literally were on path to one of the best. They were so good seasons we've ever seen. PJ yeah. Walker was amazing, and like great to see him getting his NFL contract. Um, and I think we actually saw. Bro, he started an game. NFL game that they won. Yeah. No, it was like it was Teddy was hurt. Was it, it was it was like yeah. week ten, but they won a game. Yeah. I mean, PJ Walker went from XFL to starting an NFL game that his team won. I mean, that is so cool. And that alone, PJ Walker and Cam Phillips, he was on a practice yeah. squad as well. Those those two guys You're forgetting are one gonna, guy too. Not different different team, but we've got a starting tight end. Oh my gosh. Free Donald Parham, dude. Yeah. You're, you're right. I mean, the, the existence of the, the, it'll be the PJ Walker story though, that, I mean, that will get guys who are on the borderline of the NFL practice squatters, guys who are coming out of college, by the way. I mean, I'm actually forgetting the biggest story, but there was the guy who left college early. He was a battle Hawk safety. He got drafted. He was, he was like a, a starting NFL player after playing for the Battlehawks, I I wish I could remember his name, uh, but I mean, yeah, it was it was very cool while it happened, and I know it was a very popular attitude for people to take on Twitter to be like, "This sucks." Blah, blah, blah. No, like it was awesome, and I hope they get it back, and I do hope they find out some coordination with the CFL just to bring in more quality offensive linemen. Like if every team had a decentish offensive line like it would be great. Like that would be very fun to watch. And I, I love that the rules just really incentivize passing. Like that was the best. That was fantastic. And from a DFS stance, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You, if you spent the time in it, you would have been extremely successful because you know, there just wasn't that much quality. There wasn't that much content out there. There wasn't that much focus on it. Most of the pros, like maybe the captures, you know, the time wasn't worth it. Um, but it was such a fun to watch those games. Yeah, it was. Um, all right, man. Let's go. Let's shill, shill, own the moment NFT. Tell people where they need to go. Yeah, no, I mean, hey, it's been uh, fantastic talking to Davis. So thanks very much. If people are interested in just learning more about NFTs, Top Shot, kind of joining the community, 
Uh, you can follow us at Own the Moment NFT on Twitter, and then uh, we're in all the pods, YouTube's, all of the general stuff. But uh, it's been a, it's been crazy. It's been almost two months right now, um, and just the level of interest from everyone out there talking, seeing Davis and all the great stuff. I think what was it with you were uh, with LG and maybe it was Overzet, and that was almost two months ago now. Like it's crazy yeah, that how- we. They so for a little while when you went to the NBA Top Shot about page, the YouTube video of me, Pete, and LG Doucet was like, What they were like, this is what Top Shot is, and they just linked to Peter's YouTube video. Isn't that so funny that like that's how far we've come in two months? Like, from like random strangers on the internet who were we were touting, like, uh, I mean, everything we would have told you to buy then went up, obviously, but like. It just, it was so, it was so funny. And, and the the funniest thing about Top Shot is like how time goes by. Like a week in Top Shot time is like anything could happen. The market could go up, like the market, you know, we could have a $50 million day and then a $4 million day. Like it's so absurd. Love it. Yeah. For, for us, for us edge grinders, for us just trying to get that sweat, like there's nothing better. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. Uh, I, I'm having a great time. I'm definitely very much looking forward to putting in a bunch of hyper fragile RB teams. Everyone follow Justin. Everyone subscribe to uh, Own the Moment. Listen to the podcast. Watch the streams. And I'll be back next week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.